0: Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain Plus, free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me, because I want to feel special, and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box, and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. It's being reported that 2,000 children have been separated from their families at the U.S. borders between April 19th and May 31st.
1: We discuss the administration's decision to separate families and how immigration is understood in America. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
0: Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're excited to be here with you today. We are continuing our nightly nuance sessions on Patreon. If you're not a Patreon supporter, for $25 a month, you get a little bonus nightly nuance from Beth and I. I've really stepped up my nightly nuance game in the last week. I'm feeling it. I'm actually really enjoying it. It took me a while to warm up to the new research, but I'm I'm using it as a, a a personal growth strategy <laughs> to try to be more like Beth. <laughs> uh, so last week we talked about you talked about the Paris Club, I talked about the WTO. This week I am going to read at least the executive summary of the IG report, which I know um, some of y'all want to hear our take on, and I'll be sharing my take on that with the nightly nuance tonight. Well, actually, no, it'll be by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be last night. So
1: and then I will be talking more about the Supreme Court's decision on gerrymandering, which came out. As is the new tradition with Supreme Court decisions about the second we were scheduled to start recording today's episode.
0: And as is also the tradition, they're punting again, you big babies. Sorry, that's my hot take.
1: So our quick summary, the Supreme Court has issued its decision in the Wisconsin gerrymandering case. It is it looks like the unanimous decision of the court as to the outcome There are concurring opinions, and so I'm interested to dive in and see the rationale supporting where each of the justices came down. But the thrust of the majority opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts is that the plaintiffs in this case did not have standing. And standing is a legal concept saying that we don't get to just go into court to complain about things. We have to personally show that we were individually harmed by whatever wrong we're asking the court to consider. And the majority opinion in this case says that these plaintiffs went into court to complain about a party wrong instead Mm. of individual wrongs. And that they were complaining about not the fact that in their individual districts, their votes were diluted by these practices of cracking and packing districts, but that on a statewide level, the representation of the Democratic Party was harmed by the way legislative districts are drawn and i think this is another symbol of why dealing with the problem of gerrymandering is so difficult because our framers i think at the federal level and in our state constitutions i'm just not sure that they ever really contemplated so much misbehavior on the part of elected officials in deciding how they were going to be elected. I don't know. There just aren't good accountability mechanisms for this. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how, how a court is ever going to decide one of these cases in a really meaningful way that impacts gerrymandering
0: across the board. I'm just upset. There seemed to be Justice Kennedy, the swing vote, looking for an objective way to decide. They had a very objective mathematical measurement that you can look to to see if it's basically, is your vote worth more than one? Um, And if it is, because you have, you know, you have states where they went, it's like 40 percent of the population voted for Republicans, but they have 60 percent of the congressional seats. Like it's mathematically, you can just look at it and see that it's wrong. And I just think the standing argument is A way for them to punt. And I don't like you said, I don't know how somebody finds the individual wrong, but whatever, Supreme Court.
1: Well, courts are always trying to stay out of issues that are blatantly partisan. At least that's what doctrines like standing try to do. Mm -hmm. Right. You look for all these different things and you say, well, this actually isn't justiciable because it's a political question or there isn't standing or there are there are procedural reasons that we're not going to get involved here. But gerrymandering is expressly partisan. Mm-hmm. It just is. And so, I, you know, it's not a question that courts can avoid ruling in favor of one party or another almost. And I'm not sure what we do about it if courts won't decide these cases. Well,
0: I mean, we can do what many states have done, which is set up the bipartisan commissions because they did rule those were constitutional. So there's several states that already have those that you just say, OK, you guys aren't in charge of it anymore. We're going to put this, these people in charge of it. And then it's it's broken up in a more fair and equitable way. So I guess that's what we'll have to do state by state.
1: Well, we are going to get into that opinion more on the nightly nuance. So Monday's nightly nuance, Sarah and the IG report. Tuesday's nightly nuance, the Supreme Court decision on gerrymandering. Sarah, is there anything that you want to say about the IG report today on the podcast?
0: Um, No, except I'm having to force myself to care. But see, that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to do here: is is dig into the details when I'm not super fired up about something. Which I'm definitely. Maybe I will be once I read it. We'll see. <laughs> it's a it's a little uh, trailer, a little preview of the nightly nuance. Will Sarah be riled up, or will she be like, "Oh, I don't care"?
1: You know, I'm such an advocate of being able to care about more than one thing at a time, and I'm struggling with that yeah. this week, mm-hmm. and especially with the IG report because honestly, the the little bit that I have read about it. I feel almost like I am playing into someone's hands by starting to care about it. Yeah. Because to me, the headlines read like, breaking news, human beings are fallible. Mm -hmm. Surprise. No, it's depending on who you're reading.
0: Breaking news. Democrats are always right. Breaking news. Republicans are always right. Like, I feel like that's what the spin on all of them are.
1: Yeah, people are fallible. Hindsight is better. You know, hindsight is 2020. Difficult situations lead people to make judgment calls that we all disagree about depending on the outcomes for the for what we want. And I just don't I am having trouble looking at something about an election that is having dire consequences that I would prefer to focus on and not kind of getting riled up about foreign influences in that election but being ready to take our fbi to the woodshed Mm -hmm. over the way it conducted itself in a really hard situation i'm just i'm just not i'm not that into it but maybe i'll listen to your nightly nuance and feel differently too Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: more information is always good we'll see we'll see We wanted to talk a little bit about immigration in the EU before turning to immigration in the United States in our main segment. So Angela Merkel is once again dealing with intense pressure within her own country and her own government over the handling of migrants in Germany. Her interior minister Horst Seehofer is threatening to turn away migrants at the border who have registered elsewhere in the EU. Angela Merkel vocally opposes that strategy. She thinks that it is contrary to agreements within the EU. You know, Angela Merkel has for a long time been trying to say "Simmer down everybody. We're part mm-hmm. of the EU. This is important. We got to hold it together." And this is another instance where she is Having to thread some very delicate needles because the coalition government in Germany could fall apart over this, with which would not benefit her or Seehofer or, in the anyone,
0: long run. or anyone, or anyone. It it
1: looks like this is pre election grandstanding mm. by Seehofer. Yeah. So here's what the Washington Post said. Should Seehofer opt to institute border controls immediately, it would force Merkel to make a fateful choice acquiesce and emerge a dramatically weakened leader, or fire Seehofer and risk a breakdown with the CSU, that's one of the political parties in Germany that could bring her government crashing down. Migration, always a fraught political issue for Europe, has become even more sensitive in recent weeks. The new populist government in Italy has barred rescue ships from making landfall in the country's ports, forcing them to dock elsewhere. Austria, governed by a center right and far right, coalition has also vowed to take a much tougher stand last week during a visit to berlin austrian chancellor sebastian kurtz announced a new axis of the willing against illegal migration which he said would feature germany italy and his own country but pointedly kurtz announced the plan with Seehofer, not merkel standing by his side and the reason i think it's important to talk about this as an election strategy is because 44 percent there's been a 44 percent drop in people seeking asylum in Europe since 2016. So this problem is getting better, and these parties are ramping up their efforts to call it out. Mm -hmm. And I just want us to all be aware that very often the language on particularly immigration does not match the reality of the situation, and I think this play at populism in Europe is incredibly relevant to what we're experiencing in the United States.
0: And you know what I think is not necessary? Our president getting involved in this immigration debate by spouting off about it on Twitter. Just putting that out there. That's what it
1: all is, right? It is an emotional play. It Mm -hmm. is a sales pitch for votes disguised as philosophy. There's no reason to get involved in this in Europe, except that he wants to keep the conversation going because that's part of
0: his brand in the United States. This is all product positioning. Sometimes when I read his tweets, especially like that one, what I, I'm i reading the words, and in my mind how it translates is the sound of um, Charlie Brown's mom instead of the wah, wah, wah. It's fear, 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 be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, fear, 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 fear. That's what it sounds like to me. That's That's how it translates. Everything he tweets, everything he says is just... Fear, 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 fear. Be afraid, be afraid. Fear, fear, fear. I was listening to Marianne Williamson on Oprah Supercell Sunday, and she says there's only love and fear. Those are the only two motivating emotions, fear and love. And Just the his ability to only ever, ever speak in terms of fear is mind-blowing. We've talked about this before, but...
1: It is so frustrating to me, especially as we get into our conversation on immigration, of being accused to approach these issues emotionally, when 100% fear is an emotion Mm -hmm. and 100% the way the president talks so tough about immigration is an appeal to emotion on a very base level. And that's what's happening here in Germany, I think. I don't think that there is any kind of principled strategy behind what Seehofer is doing Now, I may be wrong. I'm not there. But to me, when this problem is getting better, not worse, and you're suddenly threatening to go against what your chancellor says in advance of an election, I'm just very suspicious that there is any real philosophical motivation behind what he's doing.
0: Okay, well, this conversation is going to continue in our main segment where we'll continue to talk about the Trump administration's policy, emphasize that word, policy of separating families at the border. Um, But before we get to that, Beth is going to share this week's Pride Month moment. I want to talk
1: this week about Fannie Ann Eddy, which was a name I did not know before I started doing research to figure out who to highlight in our Pride Month moment. There are so many great options, but we really want to highlight a a diverse group of people um, across the world, not just in America. And so I want to talk about Fannie Ann Eddy, who was born in 1974. She was an activist in Sierra Leone for LGBTQ rights. She founded Sierra Leone's first Association for Gay and Lesbian Rights. The laws in Sierra Leone are modeled on old British laws that prohibit sexual activity between men, and that is still the law in Sierra Leone, but not women. Most scholars think that's because the idea of women having sex with each other was just inconceivable to people making laws at the time, and so it, it wasn't criminally prohibited. So Fannie Ann Eddy lobbied for Health and Human Rights. Her organization documented harassment and abuse, arbitrary beatings, and arrest of LGBTQ people. It provided support for what's been described as the underground community of LGBTQ people living in fear in Sierra Leone. And she founded this organization in 2002 as Sierra Leone emerged from an 11-year civil war. During that civil war, there was widespread rape and abuse, murder and torture, and I found one report that said Fannie Ann was forced out of Sierra Leone during that civil war, and she returned as it ended to found this organization. In 2004, she testified to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, and I think just directly reading her testimony to you is the best way that I can provide a glimpse at what this woman was about and how she approached her mission. She said, I would like to use this opportunity to bring to your attention the dangers vulnerable groups and individuals face not only in my beloved country, Sierra Leone, but throughout Africa. My focus of interest is the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community, which most African leaders do not like to address. In fact, many African leaders do not want to even acknowledge that we exist. Their denial has had many disastrous results for our country. We do exist. But because of the denial of our existence, we live in constant fear. Fear of the police and officials with the power to arrest and detain us simply because of our sexual orientation. For instance, recently a young gay man was arrested in Freetown for being dressed as a woman. He was held in detention for a full week without any charge being brought. Though I personally was able to argue with the authorities to release him, most people like him would have been held indefinitely, because there are very few of us who are able to speak up. We live We live in fear that our families will disown us as it is not unusual for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people to be forced out of their family homes when their identity becomes known. Many people who are forced from their homes because of their sexual orientation or gender identity are young, with nowhere else to go, and thus become homeless, have no food, and resort to sex work in order to survive." We live in fear within our communities where we face constant harassment and violence from neighbors and others. Their homophobic attacks go unpunished by authorities, further encouraging their discriminatory and violent treatment of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. When African leaders use culture, tradition, religion, and societal norms to deny our existence, they send a message that tolerates discrimination, violence, and overall indignity. This denial has had especially disastrous results in the context of HIV-AIDS. According to a recent research study published in December 2003 by the Sierra Leone Lesbian and Gay Association in collaboration with Healthway Sierra Leone, 90% of men who have sex with men also have sex with women, either their wives or girlfriends. Of that group, 85% said that they do not use condoms. Clearly, the message of sexual education and transmission of HIV is not delivered to these men in Sierra Leone. It is clear that many men get married not because that is what their inner being desires, but because that is what society demands, because they live in a society which forces them to fear for their freedom or their lives because of their sexual orientation. The silence surrounding them, the refusal to acknowledge their existence or address their health care needs, endangers not only them, but their wives and girlfriends. Yet despite all of the difficulties we face, I have faith that the acknowledgement by the commission of the inherent dignity and respect due to lesbian gay people can lead to greater respect. For for our human rights as evidenced by liberation struggle in South Africa, where the constitution bars discrimination based on sexual orientation, respect for human rights can transform society. It can lead people to understand that in the end, we are all human and all entitled to respect and dignity. Silence creates vulnerability. You, members of the Commission on Human Rights, can break the silence. You can acknowledge that we exist throughout Africa and on every continent, and that human rights violations based on sexual orientation or gender identity are committed every day. You can help us combat those violations and achieve our full rights and freedoms in every society, including my beloved Sierra Leone. So that was in April of 2004. In September, of 2004, just months later, at the age of 30, Fannie Ann was murdered while she was working alone in the Sierra Leone Lesbian and Gay Association office. She had been stabbed, raped, and her neck was broken. And no one was ever convicted of her murder. So the words that she shared with the Commission on Human Rights at the UN and turned out to be tragically prophetic about how her life would end, and the fact that no one would be punished for her death. I will tell you more about the investigation of her death and about Sierra Leone as it relates to LGBT rights in our extended Pride Month moment on Patreon. Fannie Ann was survived by a 10-year-old son at the time and her partner,
0: Esther Chico-Lipa. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour, Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses,
1: If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon priced manicure, Olive & June has you covered. We've talked about Olive & June's mani system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though
0: .com/pansy
1: As we mentioned in the first segment, it has been hard to think about much besides what's happening at the border. And so we wanted to spend some time today talking more about that on Friday's show at the beginning we expressed through a little bit different kind of dramatic interpretation that we feel like what the government is doing is the equivalent of taking our children away over parking violations. We still feel that way. And the more we understand about what's happening, the more concerning it is. Last week, ICE arrested 162 people in three days in the Los Angeles area, including a legal resident. That man, Jose Garcia, is 62 years old and has been in the United States since he was 13. Elsewhere, a 35-year-old Ecuadorian man delivered a pizza to a U.S. Army facility and was turned over to ICE. He has a wife and two daughters and is being held in custody with a hearing date of July 24th. A 47-year-old Vietnamese man just died in ISIS custody. His death is the seventh death in ICE custody in the last eight months. There was a car crash over the weekend that killed five people in connection with Border Patrol.
0: There's also just new reporting that a Border Patrol agent, there's video of him hitting a Native American man, like running him over. The guy is holding the video camera. It's pretty intense video. And obviously we have the increasing reports of the children Um, At the Walmart facility, I just read a Twitter feed from a flight attendant who flew children to Miami. Um, We now have some faraway photos of the tents they're putting up in 100-degree heat to house little boys, which is hard to say because I have little boys. So it's just that I am at least encouraged by um, the media's presence, increased presence, members of Congress who are going to these facilities demanding to be let in. I think for so much of Border Patrol and ICE, uh, what they do and how they treat people is just a black box. And we as Americans sometimes allow it to be a black box um, that we don't think about because it doesn't affect us every day. And so I'm really um, encouraged by the amount of reporting. And I mean, is it weird that I just saw on Twitter, like, Gail King standing outside one of these facilities, And I was like, okay, well, Gail is there. That makes me feel better. Just you know, there, I think the other big piece of reporting on Monday morning has just been how many people, particularly Republicans, are disagreeing with the president and calling him out. There has been Laura, First Lady Laura Bush writing an editorial. Melania Trump even issued a statement that was was vague but also said we, that they should not be – it hurts to see children separated. We should govern from the heart, which I'll take. Um, and Lindsey Graham, which I know you have some thoughts on his his statements on the policy – so it does seem to be garnering increasing attention, as it should, and I'm I'm happy about that. The, the administration's responses, however, to this increased reporting, increased pressure, and increased awareness are all over the map.
1: I'm having a hard time because I want to kind of walk through this in a really rational way. I just don't feel rational mm-hmm. about it, honestly. I, I feel... Like, I am losing my mind over this issue. Sarah and I talked a little bit on Instagram before we started, and we talked a lot offline about what a struggle it is to just live your life normally when you feel like something so egregious is happening. And and it's happening deliberately. So there are all kinds of stories in our country that if you think a lot about them will just bring you to your knees. Many of those happen in ways that are complicated because they aren't deliberate, right? No one intends that harm, but it happens anyway. Or very few people intend that harm. This situation, I think, has so torn me up because it is such a blatantly deliberate choice. It is a crisis that was 100% manufactured by this administration. And maybe that's the place to start. The White House's insistence that they are just they're just doing their jobs, they're just enforcing the law, is is manifestly untrue. Mm-hmm. And and let's kind of walk through why. You are allowed to seek asylum in the United States under international law and US law. The Trump administration has unilaterally been deciding what countries are eligible for asylum in the united states and and the executive branch has that power to make those lists but to the extent that they're saying we're getting more and more people here illegally that's because they're expanding what illegal is mm. it's also true that the administration keeps saying you know if congress wants to change the law congress needs to do it and they and they keep blaming this on democrats which just defies all logic it's honestly. a lie it's a lie It's just not true. And so it is true that Congress could change the law to decriminalize immigration. Now, I'm not going to hold my breath for Congress to do that. But immigration violations are misdemeanors. Am I right about that, Sarah?
0: Yes. I mean, if you repeatedly cross, then it is escalated. But yes.
1: So again, there are all kinds of things that that any of us could do on any given day that classify as criminal behavior and would not warrant the punitive nature of the response here.
0: The other thing is that they're not all saying the same thing either. You know, I mean, I think it's not just they're, oh, we're enforcing the law. I mean, Secretary Nielsen is saying, oh, it is not our policy of separating families at the border. And then trying to do this intense legal speak of, well, we have to refer you and then we have to separate you from our kids. But it's not because it's zero tolerance and we're prosecuting everyone. So, but but she tweeted, we do not have a policy of separating families at the border, period, which is not true. Then you have Stephen Miller coming out and saying, yeah, it was a simple decision. Yeah, of course, that's what we should do." Definitely should separate kids. That's what we're doing. That's our policy. It was a simple, easy decision, which if there is an ounce of justice left in the universe, this will be the end of Stephen Miller's career in the White House because he is damaging to this country in every possible way. And his presence in the White House is a cancer. Then you have Jeff Sessions saying, well, it's the godly thing to do, right? We enforce the laws. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And we're not sorry about that. And then you have Trump and then of course Kelly Con- and Conway coming up behind him saying that it's the Democrats fault. When nobody else is really in the administration saying that because it's patently false. And it's just this all this, you know, chaotic response, which is not surprising. And you know, the response is ranging from laughable in their blatantly false nature to just disturbing is I guess, reflective of this administration generally and shouldn't be surprising. It's also chaotic in the sense that
1: we don't have the resources to support this policy Mm -hmm. in place. They're having to build these tents
0: in a hundred degree heat
1: because we don't have detention facilities for this many people.
0: I said I had a person on Facebook say, see, we're doing what we're always doing. We're making other people our problems. I'm like, I'm sorry, are you Are you arguing against separation? Because that's exactly what the separation does. It takes all these children who were the quote unquote problem, which is not how I tend to see children, of their parents and makes them our wards. So I don't understand how this is a, you know, protect the interests of America policy in any way, shape or form, except under the absurd idea that it's a deterrent which is something you wanted to talk about
1: yes so prior to lindsey graham saying the very true thing that president trump could end this with a phone call and that is a fact Mm -hmm. because the rest of this is just purposeful obfuscation Mm -hmm. the president trump could decide this second to stop this he does not have to wait for anybody else and so i don't want to take away from the The truth of what Lindsey Graham said about that. And I appreciate him saying it. And I recognize that that was probably a difficult thing to say. However, before that, Lindsey Graham and others have acknowledged that this policy is being put in place to deter people from coming to the United States. We have talked at length in many contexts on this podcast about how deterrence is, as Sarah said before we started recording, a stupid argument. Because it usually does not work. And I think that that is worthy of additional commentary. What I wanted to say about Lindsey Graham's remarks in particular is that I don't think that we live in a world or that we want to live in a world where we decide that the enforcement of the law to its letter consistently and in every situation is always our top priority. Mm-hmm. And to me, if you are looking at this border policy and, and defending it because it is just enforcing the law, what you're saying is that you've made a decision that enforcing the letter of the law, no matter the circumstances or the justness of the law or the humanity of the enforcement mechanism, you're saying that enforcing the law is your top priority. And I don't see anything in our country's history that supports that as, as our national top priority. I see a lot to the contrary. The whole reason that we have prosecutorial discretion is because we recognize that doing justice is a complex thing that depends on the circumstances of what happens. I'll give you a really tangible example that came to mind for me. I can get fired up in a second talking about speed traps. Mm. Like I hate it when I see police officers and listen, I'm sorry. I'm not talking about anybody's individual, you know, spouse who is a police officer. Or if you're a police officer, thank you for what you do. I'm not trying to be ugly about anyone in particular. But where police departments have quotas for how many people they are supposed to tag with speeding tickets, I just, just in general, like, I just get very libertarian about this. I think most of us are out there doing our best. I drove on an interstate every day where people getting pulled over caused more accidents than it seemed to prevent. So I get really fired up about it. And so for the longest time, I would get even more fired up about the notion of putting in cameras instead of having police officers sit and wait, right? Putting in cameras that tracked people's speed. That seemed very big brother to me. And I could... Bore you for a long time with my thoughts about that. As we have learned more about what happens to people of color when they are stopped in traffic situations, I have realized that my philosophical discomfort with the idea of cameras is not more important than the actual safety and the justified fear of other human beings who experience discrimination in traffic stops. Right? So As much as I have a value that is um, inconsistent with using cameras to track traffic violations, I actually think that when I look at the whole picture, it's better to use cameras than to just uphold my one value.
0: Yeah, cameras are creepy, but they're not racist. Correct.
1: Correct. And so when I think about this border situation, I don't understand making the decision that it is more important to keep people out of the United States than to treat the people who come into the United States as human beings worthy of dignity and due process and basic rights.
0: So the latest episode of Revisionist History dropped this week, and I don't know if they planned this, but it was exceptionally well-timed. It's on the history of um, the INS, the, when it was the INS before it became ICE, and a Marine general who took over in the late 70s, early 80s. And they simultaneously tell the story of these data migration data specialists and that what used to happen in the 70s, 60s, Early 80s, with particularly with Mexico, is that it was circle migration, and so people would come up because the the cost of crossing the border was basically zero, so you could go across um, the border very easily. They would come up, they would mi- they would come up, they would do migrant work, they would go back home, and the rest of the year. And it was this very circular path where they would leave their families for a little while, go make money, come back home. This Marine general, who was by all accounts a nice man, you can tell Malcolm Gladwell really likes the dude, <laughs> but he did what he was told, which was secure the border, enforce the law. And so the cost of crossing the border no longer was zero. And it was very difficult to get across. And so it went from like almost no one staying because they were just coming to make money. They didn't want to come live in America. They wanted to be with their families in Mexico. And then to like it went from like 14 percent that would stay to like 85 percent that would stay because it was too dangerous to try to cross back and forth. And so in enforcing the law. We created an immigration problem, which I know is hard to think about. We just it's I know it's an easier view of the world to say we should just enforce the laws. And if we were, you know, mathematical equations or some a more basic species that would behave uniformly, then, yeah, maybe that would be true. But we're not. We're humans. We're complex. And we are it's almost impossible to see the totality of results with any law, much less how that law is going to affect everything if we enforce it universally, which is almost impossible to do anyway, but whatever. So, you know, I thought it was just such a good illustration of like, sometimes we make problems worse by enforcing laws. And I know that that it's, it's a difficult space to be in to say, oh, we're just going to have to look at all of them. And it's a complex situation and study it. I know nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to do Um, simple, easy, good guys, bad guys, let's move forward. But that's not the universe we live in. It's certainly not the country we live in. And I wish that just because something is easier to argue and harder to think about, we could let that go. You know, I think that it's important to think, I was telling Beth that I read When I was doing the research for the Nightly Nuance and the World Trade Organization about the impact of welcoming China into the World Trade Organization and how the Clinton administration and the proponents of welcoming China into the World Trade Organization really did not fully comprehend the impact of that decision on the American economy. And the idea was still, I think at the time, I think economics has changed a lot. But at the time, it was just people make rational economic decisions. And once these factories close, they will move to where the jobs are available and all the Americans will be fine. Well, that's not what happened because people didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay in their homes with their families in the towns they'd always lived in. And despite, you know, increasingly difficult economic positions. And we still see that across America. People staying where it's difficult to live. Because people just aren't, oh, let's just leave. You know, and anytime you move and leave your home and your family, it's a difficult decision, no matter your resources, but particularly if you don't have very many. So I think that, you know, the idea that everyone is just banging down the gates to get in here. No, sometimes it's just about money for my family. I just want to make some money and maybe I'll go back. And you know, that's that's what you hear from people who hate illegal immigration. Well, just go back. Well, maybe we're making it too hard. <laughs> you know,
1: I think you have to think about that, too. I agree with that. I think we're basing a lot of this discussion on really dated understandings of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of Americans think that we're talking about people coming in from Mexico right now. The increase is from Central America.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think a lot of people who are talking about this think that folks are coming in to take jobs from Americans. A number of the people who are seeking asylum in this country just don't want to get beheaded. You know, this is this is really different than the conversations that we were having during the Clinton administration about immigration. But we're using the same kind of language to talk about it, and that matters. And I think it also matters in the larger context of our discussions about just how we get unstuck as a country. Honestly, if we can't agree that taking babies away from their mothers and putting those babies in facilities where United States government workers are not allowed to comfort them in any way, mm. but just to provide for their basic feeding and sleeping and diaper changing needs, right? But not not their basic need of the mother as their central nervous system during this phase of life and being breastfed and and all those things. If we can't agree that that's wrong as a country and we're busy getting into who's on the moral high ground or not on all these issues, I don't understand where we think that's going to lead. I saw some posts over the weekend About, you know, well, amazing that liberals care about this, but not about abortion. Uh Listen, there is a part of me, even though I am in favor of legal abortion, there is a part of me that understands that reaction. But also, why are you looking for that fight constantly instead of just saying This is horrible and wrong, and I'm glad we agree on it. Mm -hmm. And from the other side of the aisle, the constant drumbeat of, well, you know, this is just, of course, Republicans want this because Republicans are always racist and homophobic. And if you're a Republican saying this is wrong, you ought to look at the past 30 years and see how we got here. Listen, everybody, can we just say, I'm glad we agree that this is awful. Let's stop it. Let's come together and stop it. I don't know why we are always looking for
0: those fights. So, we talk a lot about on the podcast, we talk a lot about in our book that we had that this political conversation can be an exercise in our values. And I think it was Kyla who wrote us and said, "How do we have that conversation as a big, complex country as big as we are about what our values are as Americans?" And the only encouraging part about this conversation is that does seem to be, at least at the higher levels, what this conversation is about. I am so encouraged to hear senators and Laura Bush say, these are. this is not our values as American. This is not who we are. I was listening to Rob Bell's um, program, Launching Rockets, 17 Observations on Parenting. It's a really good audio sort of program you just listen through. And one of them is, he says, there's two kinds of parenting. There's the, when your child does something wrong, you say, what's wrong with you? And then there's also a parenting where you set when your child does something wrong, you say, we don't do that. We don't do that. And I think that that is the way we can approach this conversation, is to say, I don't think anything is gained. I do not think it serves the interest of those children in those facilities to look at each other And try to shame and to say, what's wrong with you? Don't you love babies? What's wrong with you? Don't you care about our children and protecting them? What's wrong with you? Don't you care about the border? What's wrong with you? You're a terrible person. Like, I don't, it doesn't serve anything. And I am encouraged by that. There's so many people saying, hey, we don't do that. This is not who we are. And yes, I know that everyone, I'm going to get the immediate tweets and I've seen these articles and I think they're good that says, no, this is who we are. That We have done this before. And you're right. We have. We have a long history of ripping babies out of their mother's arms, along with every other human species group in the world. We are capable of terrible acts. But we are also capable of striving constantly to do better. And America is not perfect, but. I asked over social media moments when you feel proud to be an American, and I am proudest of America when I think about how we say, oh, man, that was wrong. Let's try better. Let's try better. Let's try to do it better this time. We don't like this. And no, we don't 100% all agree when we say that's wrong. That's not who we are. But enough of us do. And enough of us us stand up and say, this is not who we are. We don't do this, and we're not going to do it right now. And I think we have to keep saying that over and over and over again. And yes, I feel as powerless as everybody else. And yes, I have called my congressman and I will call them again. And I will donate money and I will do what I can. And I will keep saying, we don't do this.
1: I think we don't do that is a perfect place to end this conversation. We will continue to share on our social media channels everything that we learn about how you can get involved in um, supporting families who have been separated. I think we all are struggling with the sense of I want to do something. I know sitting in Kentucky, there's a part of me that just wants to drive down to the border and be like, well, at least give me these kids. Yeah. I'll take them all with me. <laughs> you know, um, I will see if I can breastfeed again. I will do whatever <laughs> I can do to help. Oh. And and it's hard. Or to physically stand between people and, and you know, use your mm-hmm. body that way. Like there's a part of me that really feels strongly about doing all of this. And as Sarah and I have discussed, my own children aren't served by me not having a good life with them while this is going on. But there's a part of me that feels guilty for that. This is a hard one. This is really, really a hard one because it is such a fundamental test of what we do and don't do in the United States. But thank you to all of you who've been writing and contacting representatives. Please continue to do that. And we will keep talking about this here. And hopefully that phone call will be made soon.
0: Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? I read an amazing book. and It is called Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. It's by Laura Vanderkam. I kind of don't love the title and the subtitle because I think it's kind of cliche productivity stuff. But this book is not cliche. It is so excellent. I can't even tell you. She uses the idea of how we feel in our off-the-clock moments or how we feel when we can't ever get an off-the-clock moment. And she uses data from all these people who time-track to talk about um, how people who do enjoy feeling off-the-clock, even particularly in a group that was composed of people that work full-time and have small children. So this is the group that's most likely to be like, I don't have any time to relax or whatever. But the, there are people in this group that do. This is always Laura Vanderkam's approach, which I think is really genius, which is she just goes to the group of people that seem to identify the problem but don't have the problem and ask how they got there, which is really smart. She did that in a really another book of hers that's really good called I Know How She Does It. And she just talks about um, how we feel view time and how the ways in which we view time affect how we feel in those moments. Um, particularly how we feel about the past. Uh, she talks a lot about sort of memory keeping, lingering the moment, savoring the moment, because distinguishing um, individual days. She talks about like what made this day different. Because when you can look at the special little moments in your life, um, it keeps the days from collapsing in on each other and time passing quickly and, you know, feeling always sort of stressed and, and hurried. And then she also talks about anticipation, building an adventure, building in small things to look forward to, because when you're sort of orienting the present, with this sort of relationship to the past and the future, it can really um, enrich your experience of your everyday life. Um, there's just like some really beautiful philosophical discussions there. I was, this is a book about productivity and I was crying now. I cry easily, but just really beautiful moments. Like I know on The nuanced Life, we had an extensive conversation about how we think about our children and parenting. And I was, I've really been working on within myself, this idea that like Um, I love how you say they don't belong to me and I'm trying to like release my strong attachment that I feel to the the possession of my children and their experiences. And she talks about this woman who has such a beautiful outlook on – the memories with her children as small children. Her children are now grown. And she says, like I just look at it as a treasure chest. Like every individual moment with them is this beautiful gem. And I take it out and I look at it. And I look at the pictures and I think about this beautiful day we had at the pool. And I can smell it and I can see it. And she really, she really it's almost like she's cultivating those memories. And and to I thought it was just such a beautiful way to look at because you know, when you're in having little kids, everyone's always telling you, Go so fast, it go so fast. And so I'm always like, Oh, they're gone, they're gone. And it always feels like I'm Losing them and to think about it as something, no, I've gained that memory. Now it's this beautiful gem I'm going to put in my treasure chest and cultivate and think about. It was just such a beautiful thought experiment and way to orient myself in the world. And it just, oh, this book, y'all, it's really, really good. We'll put the link in the show notes. Off the Clock by Laura Vanderkam.
1: I saw where you posted that this helped you articulate things you've not been able to articulate when people say to you, you must have more time than mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. And I was really intrigued by that. Yeah. Because I get that a lot, right?
0: Like, you must have more hours in the day. No, I don't. I don't. But she just talks about that. She's like, people, you know, time expands for what – this is what I always tell people. Time expands for work you love. And she also talks a lot about another piece of advice I offer to people, which is done is better than perfect. I know – I'm not a perfectionist because perfectionism is paralyzing. And so – I just try to, you know, let go of of that thing and just let it let it be and let it be done and move on to the next thing and enjoy that. And she does talk a lot about being late and how to how to stop being late because being hurried is a preventative to being able to savor and linger in the moment. And that really spoke to me. I'm really working on that. Um, it's just it's a hell of a good book, y'all.
1: So another resource that I want to share in our outside of politics section. We have done a lot of YouTube bashing in all of our platforms, Sarah. Yes. But I want today to talk about the genius of a YouTube channel, Cosmic Kids Yoga. Ooh, tell me more. I feel that I was doing life wrong before I discovered Cosmic Kids Yoga. This is a woman who tells stories and instructs Basically, children's yoga classes through stories. So you can do yoga to Star Wars or to Moana, wow, or to Alice in Wonderland. And do you have to be a kid? Because I want to do yoga to Moana. You totally don't have to be a kid. The it is very colorful, lively, beautiful screen that really takes the kids in. But it's a really good yoga practice. Like it's really good instruction. It is she focuses on doing the poses correctly and. It's beautiful. And my girls, both of them, they're seven and three now, are captivated by these yoga practices. They're about 30 minutes.
0: That's was my next question. How long are they? My
1: kids are quiet and focused and actually doing the poses for the entire duration of these things. That's it's cool. incredible. And what's even more genius is that she has some meditations for the kids to do, too, that – show kids how to think about their thoughts like bubbles that just kind of come and go. And mm-hmm. and it's very, it's very descriptive and it's stimulating and sort of, she, she really helps you in a visual and auditory way, understand the concept that your thoughts come up and they go away. But sometimes those thoughts come up and really influence how you feel, and so she has one about like, why are some people mean? And they're just really, really well done. And, you know, from the perspective of someone who's spent a lot of time studying yoga and meditation, I'm so impressed with the quality of what she's doing and by how into it my girls are. Jane wakes up saying, can I go do some yoga now? I mean, she is so into this. So Cosmic Kids Yoga, amazing.
0: Fine. I'm going to have to check
1: that out. I don't think it's gendered in any way. I think all kids will find something to love in what she does.
0: All right. Thank you for joining us for, as I told you on Twitter, an emotional episode. I, I, I We've been doing Instagram Lives before the episode. So if you're not following us on Instagram, you should because we've been doing sort of extended little warm-ups to the before we record on Instagram Live. And I like cried three times on that one. So I knew I was going to cry on the show. So thanks for sticking with us. And we will be in your ears tomorrow on The Nuanced Life and then again back on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is
1: listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers.
0: To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash Politics. You can connect with
1: us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly
0: emails and follow us on Instagram.